Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. Uh, Go ahead and get your Bibles open to Matthew chapter number 4. Matthew chapter number 4. Now, I know what you're thinking. We're supposed to be in the life of David. Uh, Well, we're taking a little break from David. Uh, just, just a break. We're not finished his series. I still have uh, enough messages on David to get us through to the new year and possibly beyond. Uh, but we're taking a little bit of break on the life of David this morning uh, for a, a pretty good reason. We are leading up to our sixth anniversary service. Our six-year anniversary will be October 22nd. That is four Sundays from today. Uh, And so I really want to kind of prepare your hearts and your minds for this incredible service. I I don't want the uh, the anniversary service to be just a normal service where we just preach a regular message. That's great, but I want to spend some time thanking God for what he's done uh, and then looking forward to what he's going to do. But I also want to to kind of uh, be honest with you kick your hind parts in gear a little bit to help me build this church back up Uh, because it can't all be me. Uh, It's got to be all of us working together. So we are beginning a new series we are calling Who's Your One leading up to that day. Now, uh, if if you have any intelligence about you, and I know all of you do, you understand I'm leading up to ask you to invite someone. Uh, Yes, I am. And I'm going to spend the next four weeks proving to you biblically why you need to and why you should find who is your one and work to get them to church on that day. Uh, I want to encourage every one of you, no matter who you are, how old you are, how young you are, how introverted you are, how extra, anybody. I want to encourage all of us to have a guest with us on that day. Uh, So I'm going to show you biblically why that's important. I'm going to encourage you to pray that God would use you to reach your one. Now, at the foundation, uh, I want to begin with a question. When you strip everything away from, from you, your, what you show other people, uh, what you put out on Facebook and Instagram, what you try to be, strip away your job, uh, you, you, maybe you say, well, I'm a mother, I'm, strip everything away, what is at your core? At the very foundation of your being, who are you? And what are we supposed to do as a church? I want to play a little word association game with you. What comes to your mind when I say the word conservative? Maybe something like this? Remember that guy? That's a conservative. Uh, maybe, maybe you're thinking, no, that's not, you know, he was, maybe you're thinking he was right to do what he did. And if you think that, man, we got issues. Uh, but maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, that's not who conservatives really are. They're morally upright people. They have good values. They are trying to do what's best for this country. And that's why you can, we're playing this word association game. What comes to your mind when I say the word liberal? Probably something like this. That's what y'all think. We all think liberals are just, you know, big crybabies, right? Personally, I just think that's Generation Z or Y or whatever we're in right now. Uh, I used to be millennials, but man, the next generation after millennials, whoo! I'm praying for millennials to take over after after I see some of these people. But anyway, uh, maybe you think someone who's reasonable, who cares about the environment, cares about people, and they just want to do what's right for everybody. Uh, What if I what about if I say the word vegan? I think wasteful. So many tasty animals God has given us that are just going to waste because people don't want to hurt the animals or hurt, you know. Look, if God didn't want us eating meat, number one, he wouldn't have commanded us to. In Genesis, after Noah got off the boat, he said, I command you to eat meat. So we're obeying the Bible by eating meat. But also, he wouldn't have made them taste so good. You know, if, if animals were not meant to be eaten, they would, wouldn't taste good, but they do taste good. Uh, what about if I say, what's the best team, college football team in Virginia? Maybe you think it's one of these. You are wrong. These both stink. And it hurts me as a UVA fan to say it, but 
0-4 is a ridiculous, and then Tech ain't much better, 3-1. and I mean, 1-3, and they got lucky on the first game. But these guys, they couldn't win a game no matter what. You, if, they, if you paid the refs to give them first downs, they would still lose the game. I don't know why. The best team, college team in, in Virginia, is probably JMU or ODU or somebody like that. It may be, you know, I don't know, maybe a community college has a flag football team that's better. But it ain't one of these. Michael, can you go ahead to the next slide? Because I want to look at them. It just makes me mad uh, when I look at those two emblems right now. But anyway, what if I told you to think of the word Christian? What do you think about when I say Christian? One, uh, uh, Andy Stanley did a, did a, wrote an article, and he said, if you ask 10 people, random people on the street, what do you think when I say the word Christian, you're going to get 10 different answers. Some people think of anyone that agrees with them on every issue is a Christian. They agree with me politically, they agree with me morally, they agree with me socially, they must be a Christian. That's, that's simply not true. Maybe uh, some people view Christians as judgmental hypocrites. You know, every, uh, I had to go out and knock indoors canvassing about once a week, uh, meeting people, and, uh, and every, every once in a while I'll invite someone. And I've, it's, it's, it's really the culture today t- towards the church has changed drastically, even from what it was about five years ago. Now I go and talk to people, and I get, I get cussed at. I've always been cussed at, but it's not as often as it is now. And, you know, getting cussed at, they say, hey, I'm from New Grace Baptist Church. Oh, blankety, blank, 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 blank. I'm like, what did we do to you? Nothing. Okay, then why are you cussing at me? Because a Christian, some time ago, somewhere, did something. But I'll always have, you know, sometimes I have somebody say, you know, I don't want to go to church. It's full of hypocrites. I say, look, we are not full of hypocrites. we got plenty of room. We can fit as many more hypocrites as we can in here. We got plenty of room for you to join just the rest of the hypocrites. But, you know, people sometimes have a good view of Christians. Some people have a bad view of Christians. But here's the thing. Jesus' followers in the Bible never called themselves Christians. That's what the world called them. Acts one twenty six, the Bible says, And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Antioch. The word called there in the Greek is in the passive tense. They did not call themselves Christians. Other people called them Christians. The first Christians didn't call themselves that, so what did they call themselves? Well, it's right there in the verse. They called themselves disciples. Now, a disciple simply means a follower, a learner from someone. Now, the word Christian is only found three times in the entire Bible. But the word disciple is found 218 times in the New Testament alone. What we call ourselves matters. For example, if I were to meet someone new, and I had April with me, and I say, hey, this is my best friend, April. Now, is that true? Well, yeah, she is my best friend. I tell her everything. But it's It's not really what she is. Yes, she is my best friend, but she's also my wife. And me calling her my best friend, maybe, you know, yeah, she is my best friend and we we really get along with each other, but it kind of downplays what she really is to me. Especially, look, if if I'm introducing her to another woman and I say, this is my best friend, April, guarantee you April's gonna have some words to say about that. It's like, why aren't you telling this pretty girl that I'm your wife, idiot? And so what we call ourselves and what people say about us matters. Uh, So changing how we describe ourselves matters. We have lost a lot of clarity in the modern church as to what a true follower of Jesus actually is. Now, I am not suggesting that we stop stop calling ourselves Christians and instead call ourselves disciples. If you want to do that, I'm all for it. Personally, I think... Christians could use a rebranding process. But I think if you just go to people and say, I'm not a Christian, I'm a disciple, they're going to look at you weird. So I'm not suggesting we stop using the word Christian. I'm simply saying that we really try to show people what a Christian truly is. The word Christian kind of obscures the fact that a lot of people call themselves Christians today who are not true followers of Jesus. Do you know Mormons call themselves Christians? They don't believe the gospel at all. 
Now, I know when a Mormon shows up at your house to do a Bible study, he's bringing the King James Version with him. But that's just to sucker you into his false teaching where they believe that as a man, I can be good enough to become just like God. Because I don't believe God is the only God, but he's one of millions of gods. And if I'm good enough, I can become a God. And then me and April can have our own planet that we populate because she's pregnant for all of eternity. Now, look, I, any of you ladies that have had babies, does it sound like heaven to be pregnant for all of eternity? No. Uh, to populate spirit babies. So, look, they do not believe. They, can, they call themselves Christians, but they're not. Jehovah's Witnesses call themselves Christians. They're not Christians either. They also believe in a works-based salvation. If you're good enough, then you will get to go to paradise on earth with God. If you're one of the special 144,000, you get to go to heaven, heaven. And if you don't believe in God at all, and if you're not a, Jehovah, a good Jehovah's Witness, you just die and that's it. But you have to work your way to heaven. So there's a lot of people in the world that call themselves Christians that are not Christians. So we as true Christians have to know what it means to truly be a follower of Jesus. We can show the world what it's really like. You know, so um, we're going to look at the calling of the first disciples. Because to me, disciple has a clearer definition of what it truly means to be a follower of Jesus. So we're going to look at the calling of the first disciples in Matthew chapter 4. So look at Matthew chapter 4. We're going to start reading in verse number 18. <coughs> Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And straightway they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw two other brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them, and, immediately they, and they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. Have you ever read this, this passage, this account here, and wondered, why did these men follow Jesus so eagerly and so willingly? I mean, according to the passage here, they're... They're doing their job. They were fishermen. That was their job. So they're, they're at work. They're, the day's over, but they're mending their nets. They're just minding their own business. And then this guy who, according to Scripture, they have never met. They don't know who he is. Just walks by and says, hey, follow me. And they drop everything. They don't, they don't argue with them. They don't question them. They don't say, well, you know, give us, give us a couple minutes to tidy up everything. Or, hey, let us say bye to our dad or our mom or whatever. Let's, let's take, you know, let us take, let us take care of our business. Then we'll follow you. He just says, hey, follow me. And they drop everything, leave it exactly where it is, don't say goodbye to anyone, and follow him. It's like a Jedi mind trick. You know, these are not the droids you're looking for. You know, Jesus walks by and goes, follow me. And this Jedi mind trick works on them, and they follow him. Well, here's the thing. There's a lot more going on here than the passage lets us know about. And this is why when you are reading the Bible and studying the Bible, it helps to know a lot of the historical context. And so I'm, I don't expect you to study the history of the Jewish tradition like I do to prepare a message. So I'm going to tell you what the, Jewish, what the historical context is. During this time, every Jewish boy, when they turned the age of five, would go to Torah school. In the Torah school, they would spend the next five years learning the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and not just learning it, memorizing it, where they could quote it right back to you, no problem. In the original Hebrew, they were pretty smart. And so for five years, all they did was learn the Torah, memorize the Torah, learn about how to quote and learn what everything meant. And so for five years, that's what they did. By age 10, they should have memorized the entire first five books of the Bible. Uh, and, but only at age 10, only the best of the best were allowed to continue on with their religious education. So at age 10, you may have memorized the Torah, but you, 
you know, you missed a few verses or a few words or you struggled over something or, you know, you, you got to the begattings and forgot to begat somebody. And so you didn't make the cut. But then there's, you know, there's that, there's that nerd in the, in the school who knows every word and just quotes it. You hate that kid. He made it through. You, by age 10, if you're not one of the best Torah students in the area, you're sent back home to work with your father. Whatever the job of the family, whether you're a shepherd, whether you're a farmer, whether you're a fisherman, you learn the first five books, but if you weren't one of the top students in your school, thanks for coming, go back home and work with your father. The rest of the, the best of the best, they would continue until the age of 17 where they would memorize the rest of the entire Old Testament. So for the next seven years, they would learn from, from rabbis and from Pharisees, and, from, and they would memorize the entire Old Testament by the age of 17. Now, if by the age of 17 you had finished your studies and you had memorized the entire Old Testament, you were really still, still wanting to continue on in your religious education, you would find a rabbi and ask him if you could be his Talmud. Now, a Talmud is just a, a Hebrew word that literally means disciple or follower. Now, the rabbi would examine you to make sure you were worthy to be his Talmud. Because in this time, being a, a religious leader was the greatest job you could have. Not so much now. Then, yes, now stinks. Then it was a great position. So then they want, people wanted to, now I have people coming, you know, I have uh, people contact me on Facebook like, hey, I want to go into the ministry. What should I do? Get another job is what I tell them. Uh, you know, don't do it. Trust me. Uh, but anyway, uh, that's kind of tongue in cheek. Really not. But anyway, so being a religious leader was the greatest job. So rabbis could be very selective. And so they would interview you. They would ask you questions to see if you were worthy to be their disciple. Because they could be so selective, every boy dreamed of, of doing this. So the rabbis, they would always choose the, the smartest, the most talented students to be their, their talents, to be their students. Because one of the reasons they were so picky is because they weren't just choosing someone to train to be another rabbi. They were trying to find someone who they could train to be just like them. They were training their replacement. So they wanted someone who could be like them, act like them, teach like them, because this person was eventually going to take their place. So the Talmud would follow the rabbi around for years, imitating everything that he did in every way. The highest compliment you could give a disciple was to say, the dust of your rabbi is all over you. Doesn't mean your rabbi's, you know, flaking skin and you got his skin all over you. It means you look, act, teach just like him. You, you know, if I if you didn't look different, just your your mannerisms are the same. The way you talk people are the same. The way you do things, you are a spitting image of your rabbi. They would emulate the rabbi so much that they would be just like them in every area. Now, there was a rare kind of rabbi called a shimcha. So how do you spell that? Don't worry about it. But the shimcha was a very unique, very rare rabbi that everyone in the religious society, everyone in the culture, everyone who knew them knew that they had uh, extremely unique and special authority. There are only about a dozen of these shimchas recognized in the first century church. One was Gamil. He's the one who Paul trained under. Now, to, to these, these, these people, these special rabbis, they were considered to be masters of the Torah. They had kind of a, a mystical aura about them. They were thought to be so close to God that they could give incredible interpretations of Scripture that no one had heard before. Now, if a rabbi were to be considered a shimcha, they, first of all, they had to have evidence that they had performed miracles. And it couldn't just be you walking around saying, yeah, I performed this miracle. People had to have witnessed you doing miracles. People had to 
verify that, yes, he had done a miracle. It wasn't a parlor trick. It wasn't, you know, a sleight of hand. He literally healed someone. He helped this, but he did this incredible miracle. So to be a rabbi with Shimchach, you had to have evidence of a miracle. And finally, you had to have two other rabbis who had Shimcha confirm that you were just like them. So you'd have two special uh, you know, references from other rabbis with Shemcha to say that you were just like them. And all that uh, was to show you know, that this was an exclusive club. Not everyone was considered who was a rabbi was considered a rabbi with Shemcha. It was just very few of them. Uh, now, it was very hard to get into. Now we go back to Jesus. Jesus, according to everyone who heard him, was a master of the Torah. He knew the Torah so well. At age 12, he's teaching in a synagogue. He's teaching in a temple. And the rabbis who were there, the priests who were there, the Pharisees who were there are amazed that this young man knows the scripture so well. They even thought then that he would end up being a rabbi with Shimcha. When he was teaching, he frequently said things like, you know, you've heard it said, but I say, giving unique interpretations of scriptures that no one had heard before. Throughout his, uh, the New Testament, people were amazed at the authority that he had. Matthew 7, 21 says, for he taught, as, taught them as one having authority and not as one of the scribes. A lot of the rabbis were considered scribes, and a scribe all the scribe did was parrot back what had already been written or had already been taught about the Scripture. They didn't give any new insights. They didn't dive deeper. They just said, I'm going to read this, and that's what we're going to call, we're going to be done with that. So Luke 20 says the religious leaders often asked him, where did you get your authority? Who gave you the authority to teach the way you teach? They wanted to know who he learned from. He had, he'd been witnessed by many people performing miracles. It was verified that he performed miracles, healing people. Right before this account in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is in the wilderness after being baptized, and he was baptized, who knows who he was baptized by? John the Baptist. John the Baptist was one of the dozen rabbis, according to Jewish history, that had Shimcha. So John the Baptist was a very powerful teacher, a very well-respected teacher. And when Jesus comes to be baptized by John the Baptist, you know what John says? He's greater than I am. I'm not worthy to tie his shoes. I need to be baptized by him. So he's got one very well-respected rabbi saying, this guy's got incredible power. But he also has a second reference Best reference you could ever have comes from God himself. After he's baptized and he comes up, God speaks from heaven so everyone can hear and say, hey, that's my beloved son. Hear him. Listen to him. So he's got John the Baptist and God himself telling everybody this guy's the real deal. Those are pretty good references. If you go to a reference to try to get a religious job and you've got John the Baptist and God... Saying you're who you say you are, people are going to believe you. So he knows the Bible. He teaches with authority. He performs miracles. He's got two affirmations of incredible, uh, John the Baptist, an incredible leader, and God himself saying, this guy is the real deal. So Jesus, when he comes by these disciples, is not an unknown person to them. They know exactly who he is. He's a rabbi that everyone knows this guy is one of the Shimcha. And he chooses Peter and Andrew and John to be his disciples. They're fishermen, which tells us they were sent home at age 10 from Hebrew school. They weren't the best in their class. They weren't, you know, outstanding in their field unless the field was a ship, where the sheep was. They, they did not make valedictorian. At age 10, their rabbi brought them aside and says, hey, you did a great job. This ain't for you. Go back home and be a, a fisherman for your dad. So they're not the best of the best. They're not what anyone would expect to be chosen as a religious leader. So when Jesus comes by, 
who they knew who he was. He, his reputation had preceded him. And he comes by and he goes, hey, guys, follow me. They dropped everything to follow him. They were eager to be his disciple. This rabbi with Shemcha, he'd chosen them. Guys without potential, guys without authority. So they wanted to follow him. They wanted to be like him, to know God like Jesus did, to know what he knew. Now, there are a few things we notice about this, this calling that show us what it truly means to be not a Christian, but to be a disciple of Jesus. Here's the first thing. Number one, Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. John MacArthur said, God skipped all of the wise of the day. The great scholars were in Egypt. The great library was in Alexandria. The great philosophers were in Athens. The powerful were in Rome. He passed over Herodias, the historian, and Socrates, the great thinker, and Julius Caesar. He chose men so ordinary, it was comical. No rabbis, no teachers, no religious experts, not even a synagogue ruler. Half were fishermen, one was essentially an IRS agent, and one a former terrorist. See, Jesus chose those that no one expected because he didn't want and he didn't need their abilities. See, he didn't want the work, his work in the world to come from what they could do for him. He wanted to show the world what God's power could do through ordinary people. People with talent, people with ability, people with notoriety, they would get in the way because they would not lean on God. They would not lean on Jesus to help them. His power in the weakest vessel is greater than the greatest talent without him. Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he is the least in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now look, we've all got our favorite preachers that we listen to. According to Jesus, who, let's agree, whatever he says, we should probably agree with. According to Jesus, the greatest preacher to ever live was John the Baptist. No one could preach the word like him. No one could get a crowd to repent like he did. Jesus says, John the Baptist is the greatest preacher the world has ever seen. But then he goes on to say, but the person with the least amount of talent in my kingdom is greater than him. Now, least in the kingdom means that you know the least about the Bible. You have the least amount of talent. You have the least amount of spiritual gifts. You are the least eloquent in speaking. Someone here is the least of the kingdom of God here at New Grace. You know the least about the Bible. You can't carry a tune in a bucket. You've got the least amount of talent. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, Maybe that's me. God's in heaven going, yeah, that's you. You're the least. You've got no talent. i got nothing to work with with you. You're, you're, you're stumbling all over everything. You can't read hardly at all. You are the least in the kingdom of God at new grace. But here's the thing. That's great news. If that's true, then you have more potential for power and ministry than John the Baptist ever did. You have something John never had. You have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. It isn't about your ability for Jesus that matters, but your ability and your availability to be used by him. See, Jesus doesn't choose you because you have great talent. He chose you because he wanted to, you to be a willing vessel that he could work through. The Holy Spirit in the mouth of one willing believer is more powerful than the greatest preacher who ever lived. God wants to use you in your family. God wants to use you at work. 
God wants to use you in your neighborhood. So stop making excuses as to why he can't. The only reason he can't is you won't let him. He doesn't need your ability. All he requires is your availability. We've all heard, you know, and I've researched this. This quote is attributed to about 87 million preachers. So I don't know who said it. I don't care who said it. It's great. The saying is, he doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. You're like, well, I can't, I have no talent. Great. Then you're the, you're the greatest tool God could ever use. Here's the second point. He chooses us, we, don't, we didn't choose him. Normally, again, going back to the historical context of Hebrew school and followers of rabbis, normally you would have to be the best in your Hebrew school to be able to go on. And then at 17, you would have to be the best of the best. You have to be valedictorian with you know, magna cum laude and all kinds of uh, degrees behind you to be able to go to a rabbi and even ask a rabbi, hey, could I learn from you? Could I be your, your, your Talmud? And if he liked you, he would allow you to sit under his teaching and learn from him. But you had to choose a rabbi. Now, if you chose a rabbi and you went to him and said, hey, can I learn from you? And he examined you and tested you and you passed. And he says, okay, great. You can be my, my disciple. That gave you a lot of confidence because this guy has already gone through everything you're trying to go through. He's already been through Hebrew school. He knows the, the, the Old Testament backwards and forwards. He found a rabbi that allowed him to learn from him. He's got the authority. He's got the power and he chose you to be his disciple. So it gives you a lot of confidence if a rabbi believes in you, then you can believe in yourself. Jesus starts this process differently. Peter, Andrew, John, none of them came to him. Said, hey, can we, can we be your disciple? Can we learn from you? They didn't go to him because they figured they weren't worthy. Why? Because they didn't even make it past, you know, age 10. Age 10, the, the rabbis that were teaching were like, you know what? I think it's better if you just fish. I think it's better if you just, you know, be, be a tax collector. You know, go be a, go be a criminal. That's better. You got, no pros, you got no help with this. So they didn't go seeking Jesus. Jesus went looking for them. Imagine the confidence that that gave them. They weren't the best in their class at Hebrew school. They flunked out at age 10. They were fishermen. Now, fishermen were considered right above shepherds in society. People despised. They thought they were filthy, they were dirty. They always stunk like fish. Shepherds always smelled like sheep. It's kind of like, you know, the, those, those jobs we have in our culture, but we, we, we need them, but we don't really respect them. Like garbage men. Look, I love my garbage men. I tip my garbage men every Christmas. Say, why? Because I leave a lot of junk out there that they probably shouldn't take, but they take it anyway. Why? Because I'm good to them. Because I respect them. Because I know if they don't take the garbage i got to take the garbage. They make good money, but I don't want to be a garbage man. You know, I don't want to go at lunchtime, I don't want to go hug my garbage man because he's kind of dirty, but he's essential. Fishermen were dirty, but they were essential. People didn't respect them, though. They just needed them. So they were kind of low in society, low in the culture. They were low in society, but John 15, 16, Jesus says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit shall remain and that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, Jesus is not saying he's a Calvinist. He's not saying, I'm going to choose some of you for salvation and some of you for not. No, he, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But those that do put their faith in him, he's saying, I want you to bring forth fruit. I want you to do more than just say a little prayer, accept me as your Savior, and be done with it. When you aren't, and here's what he's saying, when you are not confident in your abilities, you can be confident in his power through you. Look, you may be right now, you may be struggling in your marriage, you may be struggling in your child rearing, struggling in your career, struggling in your walk with God. And here's the thing, if you're not confident in your ability you can be confident in his promises to you. And that's where we usually fail in our walk with God. We don't lose confidence in Jesus, just confident in his promises. 
I know Jesus says, I know the Bible says that, you know, God's never going to leave me or forsake me, but that doesn't apply to me. I know he said, but just doesn't happen for me. You know, I think about Peter when he walks in on water with Jesus, you know, the storm's going. They're all in the boat, scared to death. Here comes Jesus walking across the water. And Peter says, if it's you, which I'm like, if it's him, what else is walking on the water, Peter? But he's like, if it's you, let me come out with you. And so Jesus says, come on, man. Peter gets out there. He's walking on the water. He's having a great time. But then he takes his eyes off Jesus, looks at the storm, and starts to sink. He didn't lose faith in Jesus. Jesus was still on the water. He lost faith in Jesus' promise to protect him in the storm. And that's what happens. We lose faith in the promises God has to us. You aren't doubting Jesus' power, but you're doubting his promise to work through you. And here's the thing. When you accepted Christ as your Savior, God chose you to be a vessel for him. God chose you to be a servant for him. And God chose to use you for his glory and his honor. And Jesus has a plan for your life. Your life may fall apart, but God's plan for you doesn't. When you fail, when you are facing insurmountable circumstances, God is always faithful. Philippians 1.6, the Bible says, Being confident in this very thing, he, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 46, 11, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. God has a purpose and a plan for your life. He started it. He planned it. And he's going to fulfill it no matter what. Here's the third point we want to look at. Our call, our primary calling is to be with Jesus. Look at verse 19 again here in Chapter number, uh, chapter three. <clears throat> nope, chapter four. <laughs> I forgot where I was. Chapter four, verse 19. And he said unto them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He doesn't start with the assignment. He, he, fin- he says, follow me, and then, but his first command is just follow me. Just spend time with me. His primary call to them was not to do something it was to be with him so that they could become like him. Now, to become like him, we have to know him, right? Andrew, Peter, John, all his disciples, they got to know him by spending time with him, by listening to him, by hearing him teach and seeing how he treated people. You cannot do that today. But you know how you can get to know him? By spending time with him in his word. This is how we today, in 2023, get to know Jesus. We study his word. We read his word. We see how he treats people. How he acts with people. We have to know him. To know him, we have to know his word. God wants us to know him so we can be like him. See, God... Jesus wants the dust of our rabbi to be all over us. That's what, that's what God says in Romans. He, says, he, has, he has ordained us. He has predetermined that we would be like him. Salvation is an instant thing. But sanctification is a process where we are made to look more and more like Jesus through the rest of our lives. And to do that, we have to know him and spend time with him. Look, if you want to be a disciple and not just call yourself a Christian, we need to be with Jesus. See, he died. He came to earth with a perfect life. He died on the cross for my sins and for your sins. He absorbed the wrath of God for every sin ever committed, was buried, and rose three days later. And he did all of that for more than just to save us from hell. He did it to redeem us back to God the Father, to restore us to a fellowship relationship with him to make it possible so we could spend time with him and get to know him and if we're going to have a relationship with him and know him and be like him we have to know him in his word and look knowing God through his word requires more than coming to church on Sunday morning and hearing me preach to you about the Bible Is that important yeah that's important 
We come together, we spend time with God, we learn about God. It's important we come together on Sundays. And, and it's more than just coming on, well, I come on Sunday morning and Sunday night. I'm learning, you know, about, about whatever you're talking about that morning. And I'm learning about the end. I'm learning twice, twice, twice in one day I'm getting to hear the Bible. Is that good? Yeah, that's great. But you need more than that. Well, I'm going to come to Midweek Growth Group. Great. need more than that. We need daily time in the Word of God. That's why Jesus, when he gives a model prayer, says, Give us this day our daily bread. Look, how many of you ate today already? I have not. All right. Some of you have. How many of you are going to eat today? All right. Unless you're fasting, you're probably going to eat today. Even if you're not, even if you're fasting, you know, you're fasting for long enough, you've got to have more than water. You're going to have to have some kind of, you know, I, I remember when I was in Bible college, there was a, a big push for everyone to fast for 40 days because Jesus fasted for 40 days. I did it. Uh, I, and I, look, I did it just to say I did it, and I did it, and it was hard. But there was one guy who was like, if you can suck it through a straw, you can, it's not really food. So he's like blending up steak and stuff. Like, I'm going to put a hamburger and french fries in a blender. and just, I'm like, I don't think that's the... I don't think that's really fasting. Just because you can slurp it down through a straw, that's good. But, you know, maybe we're all going to eat today. We all need sustenance every single day. Just like we need daily food, we need daily time with God in the Bible. We need to be with him every day. If you don't know him, you are not going to know him any more than you know him in his word. Fourth thing we want to look at is number four, to follow him. We have to leave it all. To follow him, we have to leave everything. When he called them, they left everything. They left their boat. They left their, their father. They left everything. And those two things are significant. Why? Their boat was their career. That's how they made money. That's how they provided for their family. Because look, we, you see later in, in the Gospels, they weren't bachelors. You know, Peter, that's why I was like, you know, the Catholics think Peter was the first pope because you just said on this rock, you know, the pope can't be married. Well, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, and no sane man is going to have a mother-in-law without having a wife. So he was married, obviously, but so he had a family. He had a wife and kids to take care of. He had a mother-in-law to take care of. God help him. Uh, but, you know, he left everything. He left his job, his career, to take care, to follow Jesus. The father... With obedience, with obedience kids, their father was the most significant relationship in their life. Following Jesus takes precedence over everything else. Luke 14, 26. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciples. Now look, I know Connor's sitting back there thinking, well, I already hate my sister. I got that one taken care of. Lexi's like, I hate my brothers. I'm always there. Now, he's not literally asking you to hate everyone or anyone. He's not asking you to lose everyone. He's not literally asking you that. But what he is saying is that if you're not willing to make him the most important relationship in your life, you're never going to truly be a disciple of his. What he is saying is you're going to have to be willing to leave it all behind for him. He may not ask you to, but he might. And are you willing to? He may call you to leave your job to serve him somewhere. He may ask you to leave a relationship that is stealing your affection away from him. Look, teenagers, he may ask you to leave your friends because they're trying to get you to do something that goes contrary to the word of God and stealing your affection from, from God. And he goes, hey, those aren't good friends to have in your life. And he may ask you to, to get rid of them. Look, some of you adults, he may ask you to surrender his finance, your finances to him. Start by tithing. No matter what God's called you to do. Look, that is, the mo that is the biggest area that most Christians struggle in, is a, a struggle in obeying God, is obeying God with their finances. And look, you can't be a disciple and not obey God. To follow him means you put everything under his authority. Forsake all that he has forbidden and pursue what he commands you to. But here's the fifth thing being a disciple means. He commands us to reproduce. He tells them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Jesus 
was a fisher of men. And that's what he's calling them to do. He's calling them to do the same thing. That is essential to being a disciple. Here's the thing. It's not something just a few select Christians are called to do. We kind of got this idea in, in Christian culture that, well, you know, being a fisher of men, that's for the professional Christians, the pastors, the missionaries, the de- you know, for those people, for just us who come to, you know, just the lay people, that's not our job, that's their job. No, 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 no. It's every disciple's job to be a fisher of men, to reproduce what God's given to us. We are all called to do it. There's, there is no, there's no such thing as a non-reproducing disciple. Now, there are those people that call themselves Christians, but they don't reproduce. They're not true disciples. John 18, 8. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. We show that we are his disciples by bearing fruit, by reproducing in others what he's done in us. If we're not bearing fruit, then we're not really a disciple. Matthew 28, 19. Go you therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. In the, in the Greek, the words go, teach, and baptize are all one verb that literally translated means go make disciples. Go make followers of Jesus. Everything we do grows out of the call to make disciples. Yeah, we need to show kindness to everyone. We need to meet needs when we see them. We need to give grace to people, to everyone we can. We need to show love to those around us. We need to offer forgiveness because that's what he's did for us, and that's what we are to do for others. But Jesus summarized his entire purpose on earth by saying this, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He healed, yeah. He forgave people their sins, of course. He helped people, yes. But that wasn't his main mission. His main mission on earth was to die for our sins, to pay our sin debt, and to rise again to redeem us to God the Father. His main mission was to bring us back into fellowship with God. His main mission was to save us. And if we're a disciple, that's our main mission as well to share the gospel with the lost and dying world so they too can accept the gospel. That's our primary mission, and it involves every single believer. Here's the thing. It's not something we do just as a church. It's something you do as a follower of Jesus. He's called you to bear fruit. So I want you to commit that during this series, you're going to commit to bearing fruit for him, to being not just a Christian, to being a disciple. So how do you do that? Well, first of all, you're going to have to get more involved in church. Say, what do you mean? If all you're doing is coming to church on Sunday mornings, that's a good start. Let's add some time to that. Say, what do, I, what do you mean? Well, we got a Sunday night Bible study. We're going through Revelation. I think we're, we're four weeks in and we've been through, I think, a verse and a half. But hey, we're learning about the Bible. We have our teen growth group on Sunday nights. Teens come together, we feed them, play games with them, have a great time, then we teach them the Bible. We have our kids, teen kids, where the kids come, and yeah, they play games, they eat, they have fun, but they learn the Bible. So maybe you say, well, I'm coming on Sunday mornings, what else can I do? You can come on Sunday nights. You can step up, well, I'm coming Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, what else can I do? Well, you can start joining a growth group on, on midweek. We have a women's growth group every Tuesday, 6 o'clock in the fellowship hall. We have a, a growth group for, for at my house every Wednesday at 7 o'clock. You can join us for that. You can get more involved in church. You can help with other areas. We, got, you know, we, we need help with the community closet and the community cupboard. You can, uh, you can help with that. And here's one thing. Look, yesterday, and I appreciate everyone who came out yesterday. Yesterday we had our, our prayer walk with Love Life. Had a, had, a great, had a great turnout of prayers and prayer warriors and Planned Parenthood was closed for the day. Weren't supposed to be, but they were. That's a coincidence. No, it's not. That's God working, but here's what I want to do. I want to become a house of refuge for love life. What does that entail? That means that women 
or men who are faced with the tragedy of abortion, if they choose not to have one, then we as a church, if, they're, if they won't help, we don't force it on them, but if they're like, you know, I want to keep this child, but I need some help, then guess what? We step up and help them. We take them to doctors. We throw them a baby shower. We do whatever we can to love on them and to help them and to get them up on the right feet. And here's the thing. If they choose not to choose life and they choose to have an abortion, we still love them because they're suffering. We help them. We show them the grace and the forgiveness of God. We try to help them through because it is a loss. I want to become a house of refuge, but here's the thing. I can't do that because it's weird for me as a man to go to a woman and say, hey, I can help you with this. No, I can't. So I need a couple women to step up and say, hey, we'll help. We'll do whatever we can. We'll love on these women. I'm going to need some people who are willing to, if a woman chooses life but doesn't, can't support the baby and chooses adoption, who may will up and say, I'll foster that kid. or I'll, I can't do it because, look, if April uh, fosters a kid, we're never getting rid of that kid. It's why I can't foster dogs. I can't foster a dog because if, if I'm fostering a dog, I'm never giving, getting rid of that dog. That dog's my dog now, and I'll have 27 dogs, so I can't do that. She can't do that because she'd be like, oh, look, we have all the children. No, we can't. We got enough. My quiver is full. But, you know, some women who can step up and say, hey, look, I'll, I'll take care of that. I'll do that. And, look, we'd be willing to help with that. But, you know, we, we, we can't take them all, obviously. You know, say, why? You don't pay me enough to have every kid in my house. So we need people to step up and say, hey, I'll do that. I'll, I'll love on these women. I'll be a mentor to these women. I'll step up and be a part of the house of refuge here. Finally, what can you do? Identify your one. Say, who's my one? I don't know. But every single person here has someone in their life God has placed there for you to reach them. And I'm not telling you right now, we'll get to that. I'm not telling you right now to say, well, here's my one. I'm going to go run through Romans Road. No, maybe how you start reaching your one is you just say, hey, you know, let's have breakfast together. Let's have lunch. Let's talk a little bit. And then invite them, hey, why don't you come for our, our six-year anniversary service? Because I guarantee you I'm preaching the gospel on the six-year anniversary. I'm given a chance to hear the gospel and be saved. Maybe you say, why don't you, why don't you come? Because look, you know how we do six-year anniversary. We're going to have a good service. We're going to have special singing. And we're going to eat like no one should eat ever. We're going to have fried chicken and all the sides. And say, hey, we're going to have a great meal. And maybe even taking the breakfast, whatever. Find out who your one is. So how do I figure out my one? Ask God. Pray. Commit to pray to say, God, who is the person in my life you want me to reach out to? I guarantee you God's going to give you a name. And it may be someone that you're really close to and you expect. It may be someone that you haven't talked to in a couple of years and you're going to have to do some work to reestablish a relationship. But whoever God lays on your heart, do that. Ask God who he wants you to reach and then obey his command. So here's my, my closing question to you. Are you a Christian or are you a disciple? Jesus has called you. He commands the winds, the waves. He commands disease and death and demons. He has no equal. He created all things, and he holds all things together. And he is worth more than just our attendance at church on Sunday mornings. He is worthy of complete abandonment of everything and supreme adoration. Maybe you consider yourself a Christian, but you've never stepped up to be a disciple. It's time to get off the sidelines and... Follow him. It's time to get up and reproduce for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.